How are you coming with Christmas shopping? You know, I, I love these personality profile tests that they do in the corporate world, and they're like, I've seen like a dozen of them, and they all are real similar in nature. I think it would be cool to do a personality profile test based on your Christmas shopping habits. Yeah, because some of you, you, you had all your presents bought in August. They're wrapped carefully, and, and, and they're ready to go. They've been ready to go since August. Others of you, men, are... Not even started yet, and you're gonna like wait till last week, and you're gonna be like frantic trying to figure out what to buy. And then there are still others of you that are my heroes because you celebrate Christmas shopping. It's like part of your year that you look forward to, and you were out on Black Friday. Black Friday is a day that I just plan to stay in my house. I don't even get out. If I'm preaching that weekend, I just work on the sermon all day because I don't even want to get out and see it. But some of you, you like got out early on Black Friday. And so I just want you to know you're my heroes. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, uh, but you are interesting people. One of the things I do enjoy, (laughs) (laughs) when I say interesting, I love reading stories, harvesting stories from Black Friday. I read one about something I think it happened this year. There was a woman who called, (laughs) called 911 because she went to a store and they wouldn't price match Best Buy. I'm serious. Call 911. Call the police. And they came out and arrested her <laughs> for misusing a public emergency service. And then there was the guy several years ago, back when plasma was the big thing. He, he camped out at Walmart for four days, got there with a tent. You know, he had his little portable heater and his food and his TV set, and he camped out there four days to be the first person to get one of 15 plasma televisions that were being sold ridiculously cheap at Walmart. And so everybody watched him there, and he was, you know, he was kind of, you know, having a good time, and, you know, he's staying out there at the cold night and all day long, and <laughs> news crew from television station that came out and interviewed him about what it was going to be like to get one of the TVs. He was so excited, but he was the first person there. Sure enough, they opened the doors. He got back to the electronics section. All of them were wiped out. Seems like the garden shop at Walmart opened up 10 minutes before the rest of the store. Oh, it's kind of sad. My wife's got it beat, though. My wife has discovered Amazon. In our house, it's Christmas 365 days a year. I pull up in the evening. There are boxes all over my porch. There's Amazon, Amazon Prime. There should be a new category for Mary Alice called Amazon Sainthood. (laughs) And for me, I'm left to figure out what to do with the boxes. Wednesday morning is trash morning in Andover, so I get my dumpster out there, and then I have all these boxes in my garage that I'm trying to fit into each other to make a smaller pile of boxes. It's like playing Tetris every Thursday morning. (laughs) But I think there was an old lady that really beat the whole system because she she had kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, and she was well-to-do, she decided that she was tired of going out trying to shop and figure out a gift for all of her kids, grandkids, and great-grandkids. She just went to the bank and got a stack of $100 bills and decided she would send them a Christmas card that just said, buy your own present. And so she sent off all the cards. About halfway through January, she was in her office in her house, and she found that stack of hundreds untouched. And for those of you who haven't got it yet, all of her kids and grandkids got a card that said, buy your own present. So, 
It is hard not to be jaded about Christmas shopping because in some of our cases, you know, it's the obligation aspect of it, feel obligated to buy a gift. For others of us who wait till the last minute, it's the frantic nature of trying to find something at the last minute. And still in these difficult economic times, there's some who would say that it's the expense because you wind up spending too much money and even maybe running up your credit cards in order to buy gifts at Christmas. And even though you enjoy gift giving, the pain of what it does to you economically causes gift shopping not to be all that much fun. Well, today, today's talk is, is about shopping. The title of today's message is Shopping for the King. It is something, though, that in this season, and it is a season of gift giving, which is a good thing, that we can almost forget about who the season is about. This is a message for worshipers. I am going to preach a message today for those of you who worship Jesus. But actually, I should back up a little bit and say the truth of the matter is all of us worship something or someone. If you're under 45, you may not know this name unless you're a student of classic rock and roll. But one of the greatest rockers of all time was Bob Dylan. And for a season in Bob's life, he felt that he had trusted Christ, and he wrote some great music. In fact, I still think some of the greatest gospel music of all time was written by Bob Dylan during this season. But he wrote a song that not only went to the top of the Christian charts, it went to the top of the secular charts as well. And Bob's song said, you got to serve somebody. And he's right. You have to serve somebody. You, You have to worship someone or something. So when I say this talk is for worshipers, I guess when I get right down to it, this talk is for all of us. You and I both worship something, and life is going to come along at some point to test what we worship. If you're not in a season of testing, you can worship sports or money or sex or power or business success, or you can worship yourself. But when life comes along to test what you worship, it's going to reveal how good your God is. When the second service Sunday was over last week, I had to go to Eisenhower because I had to catch a plane for Florida, but I was sitting at my gate and had a little while before they called us to board. And while I was sitting there in the terminal, I remembered that I have a friend here in Kansas in Wichita who had routine surgery a month or so ago, and it was discovered that his problem was much more severe than they at first thought. It was determined he had stage four cancer. And so I just wanted to call him before I got on my plane to see how I was doing. And I called him and I asked him how I was doing. And he said, well, he had had several procedures done. And he said when they first diagnosed it, his diagnosis looked really dire. But now it might not be as bad as they at first thought. It might actually be much better than they thought. And I was trying to encourage him with that, saying, well, that's optimistic. That, that's promising. And my friend, who's kind of a low-key guy, said, well, it's like this. He said, if, I, if it turns out okay, I'll have a few more years with my wife. If it doesn't turn out okay, I'll have time with Jesus. I win either way. You see, that's what a real worshiper of Jesus sounds like. Not one of us Saturday or Sunday jockeys who just come by and Jesus is an asterisk in our life and we really worship sports, money, self, whatever. All I'm saying, and I'm not trying to be preachy here, I guess that's what I do. Um, <laughs> All I'm trying to say is whatever you worship at some point, life is going to test what you worship. And life is testing my friend. But today's message is about worshipers. And, you know, the thing about the word worship, I don't know what you, how you define the word worship. If you're, if you're in a Christian context, you would say, oh, Mark, we, we already worship. We, had the, we sang songs, and that's worship. Well, that's a manifestation of worship. 
But you need to understand the etymology of the word. It comes from an old English word, actually two words put together, and those words were worth-ship, worth-ship. See, when you worship, but what you're basically saying is, God, you are worth something to me. So consequently, I'm responding in a legit way to who you are. That is worth-ship. And so what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at the wise men or the magi. And we've been exploring their story for a couple of weeks now, how that this unusual, almost bizarre set of circumstances where the world's most intelligent, most respected people left their part of the world on their own nickel, went halfway across the world to fall face down before a peasant baby in the land of Israel. So what I'd like to do today, before we get into what we're going to talk about, is I'd like to read just a couple of verses that tell us about their story. And this is when the wise men are leaving Jerusalem. You'll hear about that next week. But the wise men are leaving Jerusalem and the star, and I need to let you know that although the English word is star there, it just simply means a heavenly phenomenon. And the reason why we know it's not a star is it, it tends to move and it tends to stop in a particular place. Uh, for instance, when they see the star, it's in Jerusalem, it's going to move a few miles away to Bethlehem. If it was an actual star, it wouldn't seem to move in locations that are that tight. Every once in a while, someone that interests me, and I won't preach on this too much today, but people try to explain what's going on here through natural phenomenon. God is not limited to natural phenomenon. This is a one-and-done situation here where Jesus is coming into the world, so consequently God is doing extraordinary things. From time to time when I brought the message that Jesus was born of a virgin, people will say, that's biologically impossible, to which I respond, duh. This is the only baby born in the world. God is setting him apart, saying this baby's going to be born differently than all others. That's the, you know, hence the point. I would, mark, I would point out the first human being got here without a father or mother. Anyway, here we go. Let's go back to the text. And there it was, the star they had seen in the east, and it led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. It's interesting, in the original language in Greek, there are three words for joy here. And it's very hard to communicate in English what it says. But basically, when they, saw, when, they, when they saw the heavenly phenomenon, what the Bible is saying is they were happy with a happiness. And the third word sometimes is translated into violence. But basically what it means is they were happy with a happiness that was radical. That's really cool. I love that. Now, in Matthew 2, verse 11, the Bible says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Now, if you have a nativity scene in your house, chances are it goes something like this. There's a manger with a baby in it. There's Mary and there's Joseph. And then there are some shepherds. And then the wise men are presented there. All throughout my life, when I was studying for ministry and then throughout the years of listening to preachers preach, I have heard preachers wax eloquent on how that the wise men were not actually at the stable, that they appeared much later in Jesus' life. Well, I'm an old debater from high school and college, and I understand the rules of evidence and the sequencing of logic, and I started applying that to this story, and I want to make a case for you that they were actually at the stable. Let me point out several things for you to consider. First of all, the word for house there can be used of a temporary dwelling place. Secondly, when they left Jerusalem, based on what the prophets said, they went to Bethlehem. And remember Herod, we'll see this in a later message, Herod had all the boy babies under the age of two killed in Bethlehem. But Jesus is not from Bethlehem. He's from Nazareth. That's where his family's from. That's where he'll grow up. They were only in Bethlehem because the Roman government declared a census. 
Eight days after Jesus is born, they are in Jerusalem dedicating him at the temple. So that means they're only in Bethlehem for eight days. And then beyond that, Joseph, in order for Jesus to be in a house when the wise men came, Joseph would have had to have found a house in Bethlehem within eight days, considering the fact he could not find a place for Jesus to be born, it's unlikely that he found a house. So it has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon today. I just think the wise men came to the stable. So if you've got them in the nativity scene, don't pull them out. (laughs) That's totally irrelevant. Here's what is relevant. The Bible says they worshiped him. They didn't worship Joseph. They didn't worship Mary. They didn't worship the stable. They worship the baby. Now, why is that significant? I mean, it's hugely significant. In fact, I'm not even sure there are too many facts in the world that are more significant than that. When you study the Bible, you'll discover that every human being and every angel whom someone thought to worship was always always restricted from worship. And in fact, in the, in the last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, John is talking to an angel, and he's so blown away by the majesty of this angel, he's inclined to worship. And he says that. He said, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, the angel, no, don't worship me. I am a servant of God just like you. Worship only God. Now, when these wise men worshiped the baby, they didn't just like fall to a knee. They fell flat on their face prostrate. These are the world's most elite scholars, and yet they fall face down before a baby. What does that tell us in juxtaposition to the scripture that we just read. It tells us that the baby in the manger was God. Exactly what John says in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. That Greek word there means face-to-face, denoting equality, and the word was God. Jesus was not a human who became God. He was God who became human. He was God on a rescue mission, and when that baby was lying in the manger in Bethlehem, that baby was God and worthy of worship. That's the story of Christmas. Even though Jesus was a baby, the Magi had come into the presence of God. And so have you. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered together as my followers, I am there among them. Well, I don't know how many are here in this room. I don't know how many are in the North Auditorium. I'm guessing if it's typical New Spring weekend, there are probably somewhere around 22, 2,300 people, maybe 2,500 people on our campus right now. Well, Jesus said if two or three are gathered, I'm, I'm there, so certainly he is here today. How, do you, how, do you, how seriously do you take that? I ask that for a reason. Because after they fall down and worship him, in Matthew 2, verse 11, the Bible says... Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense, which we know to be frankincense, and myrrh. When I read that, what that says, not at the risk of sounding overly simplistic, what had been theirs became Jesus's. In the presence of God... It was incumbent upon them in their minds to take what had been theirs and to make it Jesus's. What you just read about is the first Christmas gifts. 
This is the first time anyone ever shopped for Christmas. These are the wise men. And so what I'd like to do with your permission today is I'd like to take you on a journey of five simple concepts that are revealed to us in this story. And the first one is the obvious. We'll start with the most obvious. And that is simply this. These magi did not show up without a gift. I mean, they were not going to flake out on Jesus. See, here's the thing that I'm trying to wrap my mind around as I get ready for this talk, or as I did. In the mind of the Magi, worship without something tangible to bring was inconsistent. Because we already know they fell face down and they worshiped him, but then they opened their treasures and presented it to him. It made no sense for them to say, Jesus, you are worth a great deal to us, and yet to show up without a gift for him. I think David felt the same thing in the 112th Psalm when he asked this question, what can I offer the Lord for all of his goodness to me? I don't know what your year was like. I hope you had a good year. I've had good years. I've had bad years. But for us, 2016 was a wonderful year. God answers so many prayers for Mary Alice and me. Thanksgiving morning, it was like I just, I just couldn't stop thanking God for all the good things that he's done. And David said that. He said, what shall I offer back? Not that he was trying to pay God. He knew there was no way he could pay God for all his blessings in his life. But David's saying, how shall I respond? Do you ever ask that? I'm saying, do you ask that? He said, well, Mark, I worship God, but to these wise men, it was inconsistent to say we worship God. He's worth something to us and yet show up without a gift. Now, the second thing that I noticed about these guys as they, as they brought their gifts is that their gifts were intentional. Sometimes, again, it's hard to take what's in the Greek language and translate it into English. But when it says they opened their treasure chests, it's an interesting word. It doesn't appear too many times in the New Testament. Sometimes it's actually translated casket. But what it means is they had treasure chests. Um, Mary Alice and I met in high school. We married my senior year in college, so we dated for a long time. But it wasn't long after I met Mary Alice. She was probably 14 or 15, when she told me she had a hope chest. I don't know if ladies still do that today or not. But her hope chest, hope chest was, she'd already collected items that she was going to have when she got married. And we will be married 40 years next year. She still has some of those items that she collected in her hope chest. And that's the word that's being used here. These wise men, once they fell forward in worship, they, they opened their hope chests and most likely, these treasures that were in the hope chest, they had spent years uh, searching and collecting for these items. Now, I got to tell you, I'm not always a good example of this, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm putting myself back in Babylon as these guys are getting ready for the journey. It's like, this is going to be hard enough for us to travel, and you know what? The last thing we need to do is carry a whole bunch of stuff. Why don't we just wait and get there and see what's open on Christmas and buy them something on the road? Do you ever do all your shopping at Walgreens because it's the only place open on Christmas? It's like, you know what? I think she could use a hot water bottle. <laughs> Listen, guys, again, I wish you could read this in Greek because the, the feel is excitement. It's like they fall down to worship him and then with this huge grin on their face, it's like we cannot wait to open our treasure chest and show what we brought. <clears throat> My dad's been gone for three years. He, he could never wait till Christmas. 
because he'd buy stuff for me, and he'd be so excited about me seeing what he bought. It was like he just couldn't wait to show me. And I leveraged that. I really did, shamefully. Because I'd start asking him questions, and I knew I'd be asking him questions that went nowhere. I was just wanting to get him in the rhythm of answering my questions. If If you've ever done negotiation or marketing, you know that's really important. Just get people in the rhythm of answering your questions. <clears throat> oh, no, he'd say, no, I didn't get that. But then I'd start getting closer and closer, and he'd get this huge grin on his face, and then he'd start laughing, and he couldn't stop himself. I don't think I ever opened my Christmas presents after December 13th. <laughs> I never had a present on Christmas Day because my dad couldn't keep a secret. You know why? He loved being a giver. One of my favorite stories I read as a teenage preacher, but I, was, I read this story about a young man who had been given a car by his older, wealthier brother, just bought a car for his brother. And so the young man who had the car was getting ready to leave his office one day, and a kid came up. And the kid said to the man, that's a beautiful car. And he said, yeah, my brother bought it for me. He said, you mean he just gave it to you? He said, yeah. You mean you didn't have to pay anything for it? No. Your brother bought you a car. And the man said, yeah. The little boy said, you know, I wish, and the guy thought he was going to say, I wish I had a brother like that. He said, I wish I could be a brother like that. Where does that comment intersect you? Do you enjoy being a giver? Does it excite you to give or does it excite you to get? What I noticed about the wise men is they were intentional. And then thirdly, their gifts weren't cheap. You know, um, there are some people who are cheap when it comes to giving gifts. There was a guy up in New York City. The guy was a total skin flint. I mean, he he just didn't, he was stingy. And he was trying to buy a Christmas gift for a friend of his. And he's in one of those high-end New York stores and where all the gifts, you know, were wildly expensive, but he went to the bargain basement. There in the bargain basement, there was a dollar table. I mean, it, was, it wasn't like one dollar. It was just really cheap stuff that was there on the table. So he started perusing the dollar table to see if there was anything there to buy for his friend. And he came across a, a vase that had been several hundred dollars in cost, but it was broken. The handle was broken off. Porcelain handle was broken off. And he got to thinking to himself, you know what? If I bought this, it was like two or three dollars. If I bought this and I took it to the gift wrap of this store, this high-end store, and if they wrapped it up, I could send it to my friend and he would think it got broken in shipping and I would come off looking like this big spender. So sure enough, he took both pieces over to gift wrap and he said, would you wrap this? They wrapped it up. He sent it off to his friend. He got the thank you note from his friend, said, thank you for the beautiful vase. By the way, it was so innovative of you to have the pieces wrapped individually. When it comes to giving, there are gifts, true gifts, and there are tokens. How do you know, how, how do you know what a true gift is? And, and, and this is true whether you're talking about buying a gift for the per- most important person in your life, or you're talking about buying a gift for your wife or your kids or your parents or your, or your friend, or whether we're talking about what we do for Jesus. How, how do you know the distinction between a token and a true gift? I'm going to show you. I want you to imagine in your mind a scale. And over on this end of the scale is your ability to give. And at the end, on the other end of the scale, is the worth of the person that you're buying for. 
You can always measure a true gift because along the line of the skill, there is a click point that is sacrifice. Anything short of sacrifice is just a token. When you reach the point of sacrifice, you have the definition of a true gift. See, the weird thing about it is we Americans claim that that we love Jesus very much and that this whole holiday is about him. But in reality, when it comes to doing something for him or for his work in the world or for those people who are in need that we give in Jesus' name, many of us, our, our ability is over here, and we say that Jesus' worth is over here, but we just give a token gift. You know, in, in this context, the size of the gift is not necessarily the ultimate judgment. You remember when Jesus and his disciples were watching people give money to the temple treasury? And there was a woman who walked in and dropped two coins, which are the smallest measures of currency in their world, just dropped in two tiny coins, while others had tossed in big amounts of money. And the disciples were like turning up their nose at this woman who dropped in two coins. And you remember Jesus said, she gave the biggest gift of all because she's given everything she had. You see, her ability was over here, and God was worth so much. The only problem was her point of sacrifice came very close to her ability. But there are some of us who have ability, and we say that Jesus is worth a great deal to us, but we're dropping in the two coins. We're just dropping in a token, and we're feeling good about ourselves when in reality, and there's no getting around this, especially when it comes to Jesus, if what we do for him is just a token, he's not worth what we say he's worth. He's worth much less than we say, and there's no getting around that. One more time, just to make sure we don't miss this. If you want to know how to measure a truth gift, abilities on this end, worth is on this end, wherever the point of sacrifice clicks, that's what a true gift is. Well, let me just run past this because the fourth thing about these givers was that their gifts were meaningful. They, they had studied Jesus. He hadn't been born yet, but they had 500 years of prophecies that had been written about him. And they knew who this baby was going to be. And so the three gifts that they brought were meaningful. And most likely you know already what those gifts are, even if you're not a God follower or even a religious person, chances are you've heard these gifts in songs. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, these were not accidental gifts. Gold was the most precious metal in the world at that time, and it was a metal that always represented kings. So consequently, they knew that Jesus was going to be a king and gold represent his kingdom. The second gift I find very interesting because it was frankincense. I don't know if you've ever smelled frankincense or not, but it's one of the most delightful, delightful smells in the world. Frankincense was an incense that was used by priests as they ministered in the temple. So consequently, these guys understood that not only was Jesus a king, he was also a priest and he would have a priesthood. The Bible talks about prophets and priests. I don't know if you know the distinction between prophets and priests or not, but here it is. A prophet represents God to people, but a priest represents people to God. And when Jesus came into our world, that's what he came in the world to do. He came into the world to lock hands with you and me and then represent us to God. And that's what the frankincense represented. I love Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 that says, we don't have a priest who's out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. So that's what the frankincense represents. But if we understand the gold and the frankincense, the myrrh is really a challenge because myrrh was used in embalming. 
See, Daniel had told them that this baby was going to die young, appearing to have accomplished nothing. And so when they brought those three gifts, they were meaningful, just like all of us want to give gifts that are meaningful. And now the fifth observation. The gifts were practical. Why do I say that? The gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, if you know the story of Jesus' birth, you know that Herod, you're going to hear about this next week, Herod was a usurper to the throne. The wise men walked in with the most inflammatory question they could have possibly walked in with. They didn't know it. They thought they were asking the obvious question. They walked in and asked a question that blew up the city of Jerusalem. They said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Well, why was that a problem? Well, Herod was on the throne, but Herod wasn't even Jewish. He was Ottoman. He was, he was the puppet king installed because he shot pool with the Romans. So Herod was always trying to make sure that he protected his kingdom, having anybody killed who got in the way. The Jews had not had a born king in 500 years, so the wise men just walked in with the promises of God to Jerusalem and started asking everybody, where is he who's born king of the Jews? And they blew the dust off the Bible and said, well, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, according to Micah the prophet. So Herod said, well, let me know so that I can go worship him. But he didn't want to worship Jesus. He wanted to have Jesus killed. And so he ordered all the boy babies under the age of two to be killed in Bethlehem. Now, what happened next was God warned Joseph, and he took the infant and Mary, and they went to Egypt. That's right. Jesus spent the first two years of his life in Egypt. I have never heard from a Bible scholar yet who did not believe that the way they survived in Egypt for two years was on the gifts that these guys brought. The gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, they were responsible for providing a house for Jesus to live in, clothes for him to wear, and food in his toddler tummy. It's what took care of them while they were in Egypt. You know, God doesn't really need a gift, does he, in heaven? But God's work is not in heaven right now, is it? God's work is here, kind of like in Egypt. And just as Jesus didn't need a gift in heaven, as a baby in, in Egypt, he needed a tangible gift. And the work that God is doing in our world today is here. And so for those of us who love Jesus... And it is his birthday. You know, a little girl was asked, did you get everything you want for Christmas? She said, no, but it's not my birthday. We're challenged with the reality that God's work is in our world. It's in Egypt right now, and tangible gifts are needed. Here at New Spring right now, we're involved in something called Project Generosity. And we've selected four ministries in our community that we're trying to minister to. Three of these involve giving money, frankly, and one of them involves bringing items. And you can see all around our campus, campus we have Project Generosity trees, and these cards are available. There's information on the back about what you can do. One of these ministries is a union rescue mission. It's a great opportunity. It's a great ministry that helps people who are down and out, helps them get back on their feet, get off the street. And we have a goal of providing 5,000 meals for the Union Rescue Mission. See, God's work is in Egypt right now. And right now, tangible gifts are needed to put food in the stomachs of hungry people. And then fresh hope. 
I don't know if you know about Fresh Hope or not. Fresh Hope is not just one of the greatest ministries in Wichita. It's one of the greatest ministries in America. It was started by a new springer. He, she had a vision for women who were in life's most difficult circumstances, reaching out, getting a helping hand, getting training, getting a new start, providing them with a mentor. Fresh Hope is one of the greatest ministries in our nation. I will never forget Fresh Hope, but in case I do, Mary Alice will not let me forget Fresh Hope. She loves this ministry. And, you know, so many women go through so many horrible things. And who's going to help them get a new start? Who's going to help them find a job? Fresh Hope does that. And one of the things that Fresh Hope asks us to think about is Bibles. Because as these women grow in their faith, it's really important for them to have their own personal Bible. And so we want to provide at least 150 Bibles. We're actually providing the same Bible I preach from every weekend. And so that's a goal for us at Fresh Hope. And then we love education and educators at New Spring. We want to provide supplies for 100 teachers in their classrooms. And so that's something that's very important to us. In the, in the economic down years that we've had right now, school systems have suffered. And we love educators and we love, we love schools. And we want to provide supplies for 100 teachers in classrooms. That's God's work. It's in Egypt right now. And we want to step up. And then the fourth ministry that we're looking at is called Embrace. It was formerly uh, the Pregnancy Crisis Center. And our goal is to provide baby supplies for 100 families. This time we need you to bring items. And there's a list of what to bring on the back of this. But this is singles and couples that are dealing with challenging uh, pregnancies. And we want to help them with items that they'll need. See, God's work is in Egypt right now. I mean, you can't give God... uh, money in heaven. He doesn't need it. The streets are paved with gold. But right now his work is in Egypt. New Spring is in Egypt. Their gifts were practical. Well, I, according to that clock, I got one minute and 14 seconds. I've tried to talk about this for three weeks now. I was having breakfast with Mary Alice a couple of days ago. And I said, baby, I'm having the hardest time explaining just how extraordinary and unlikely this story is. I just cannot seem to find the English words to explain the strangeness of the story of the Magi. And the reason for that is, for all of us who've grown up in America, and especially in American Christianity, they're sort of baked into the narrative. They just came. But the thing that I find so peculiar is that these are the world's elite. And I juxtapose where they lived and what they did and the money they had and the prestige that they held in the known world. And I think about the fact that they dropped everything on their own nickel and went halfway across the world to fall face down in front of a peasant baby probably lying in a barn. You know, in our world today, a lot of the elite disregard Jesus because he just doesn't seem to pass to the level of their sophistication. So do you find it ironic as I do? And I keep trying to wrap my mind around it, and I want to know why. These were not Jews. If these had been Jewish scholars, I'd dig that. I'd get that. But they were Babylonian scholars or Persians or Medes or, or, or whatever, Greek. We don't know. They just lived in that part of the world. But these were the world's elite, and they traveled all the way across the world. And I just see them not bowing down before a live grown king and not even a baby in a palace, but an infant baby wrapped up in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger on a feeding trough, in a barn because his parents couldn't get a room in the hotel. 
I was flying back from Florida this week, and I was just reading through the book of Daniel, which is the book they would have been basing everything on. And I happened to read chapter 9, in which Daniel tells when the baby is born, what he is going to bring into the world. And I saw three things, and I thought, I know why. Daniel wrote that when the Messiah was born, the three things he would do is, first of all, he would put an end to all wrong. We just finished a presidential election, and presidential candidates promise everything. But even so, I didn't hear any of the presidential candidates say, if you elect me, I'll just put an end to all the bad stuff. There won't be any more racism, any more hate. There won't be any more lust or greed or hurting people. There'll be no more abuse. If I'm, if I'm in power, every bad thing is going to stop. But that's what Daniel said. When he becomes king, and he will, he's going to put an end to all bad in the world. But see, I'd almost, work with me for a second. If I heard that, I would start having a problem with that. Because I would think, well, I got a lot of bad in me. Right? I mean, if if he's going to come and put an end to all bad, maybe he's going to get rid of me because I've got stuff in me that's bad. So maybe he just hates bad. I love the juxtaposition of the second thing that the Messiah brings because Daniel said not only will he put an end to all bad in the world, he will atone for all the bad that's been done. So when when Jesus comes into the world, not only will he put an end to all the wrong, he will atone for all, in other words, he'll pay for all the people who have done wrong. Wow, that's extraordinary. And then the third thing Daniel said is he will bring in everlasting life and everlasting good. In his kingdom, the people who live there will live forever, and they'll live in a world where everything that happens is good, where people won't hate, but they'll love, where people won't abuse, but they will bless. A place where people don't get sick and don't die and don't have cancer like my friend. You understand now why when Jesus was born, the wise men left everything and raced and bowed before a baby because this baby could just do what nobody else could do. I've spent this message asking you how you're going to respond to God's goodness in in your life. But I want to take a moment to ask you this. How do you respond to the gift <laughs> preacher was talking about Christmas. They had a little three-year-old girl, and they kept every day they'd add more Christmas presents on the tree. And so she got excited with every gift, and she would like pick them up, shake them, and everything. And one day she shook a gift too hard, and a red bow fell off. And the little girl, was a, you know, sweet little three-year-old, reached down, picked up the bow in a moment of inspiration, stuck it on her head, and said, "Look, Daddy, I'm a present." <laughs> when Jesus came into our world, he was the present. Think about what he offers. In his kingdom someday, an end to all wrong, atonement for us so that we don't have to pay for our own sin, and then being able to live forever in a world where everything is good. You say, Mark, that sounds sounds impossible. That's because you're used to living in a world where Jesus doesn't reign. These guys believed, and I believe. And that's all God asks from you. He doesn't ask you to join a church, do community service. He doesn't ask you to pay money. He just asks you to believe. 
And if you're here today and you've never really connected with God, but that's an attractive concept to you, let me just tell you that the deal is on the table because Jesus is saying, look, I, I want to get rid of all the bad in your life ultimately, but I know that you're a sinner, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay for your sins so that you can be completely innocent in God's sight even though you're not innocent. And then when you die, I'm going to take you to live in a place where everything is good. It sounds attractive to me. And if that's something that you crave, I'm going to ask you to join me in a prayer that reaches out to God because God said to ask. And that's why each week I'll lead you in a prayer. So if you want to invite Jesus into your life, I would just bow your, all of you, would you bow your head with me, both auditoriums, online, on television, and just pray with me. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I can't fix myself. But I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. Would you forgive me? and make me your child, I do believe. I don't understand, but I believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer with me, I got your first Christmas gift here. It's not even December 13th, how about that? Seriously, I just it, all you got to do is take your talk to us card. You got one when you came in, or there's one in the seat back in front of you. Just fill it out and check the box that you prayed to receive Christ. I have a Bible in here for you. I've got a book I wrote that will help you understand the decision you just made. Go to guest services if you're in the North Auditorium. It's right around the bend. Just say, I prayed with Mark. Thanks for being here this morning. If you want me to sign, I'll be right back out there. <laughs>